the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're having a fabulous Saturday. This is Al Fadi, and if you're tuning in, you're listening to Let Us Reason, and we are so excited to be of service to you, and I hope that we have found all of our previous episodes uh, in various topics to be helpful to you and your ministry and your interactions with our Muslim friends. And of course, we've been going through a number of series, myself and Sam Shamon, who is with me here in studio. And uh, some has to do with the concept of Tawheed and Islam and how that's actually a real dilemma for our Muslim friends, meaning thinking that the God they worship is an absolute one God. We have shown in a variety of ways that that's not the case. We have shown that the spirit mentioned in the Quran is either uh, equal to Allah or uh, Allah himself, uh, basically, uh, which den- uh, which goes uh, flies in the face of what Muslims say that Allah himself uh, cannot really appear anyway, or Muhammad being equal or elevated more than Allah, not to mention so many other forms of idolatry that are found in uh, Islam and its primary sources, the Quran and the Hadith. And in the last at least couple of shows, Sam did an excellent job, of course, in pointing out the obvious, and that's the worship of stones in Islam, uh, you know, whether the black stone or whether the Kaaba. And today we are going to continue along this same theme. Sam, welcome back, brother. Thank you so much for taking the time to do so. And I'm going to turn it over to you to continue yes, with sir. this excellent discussion from last week. Again, thank you for having me. And I just want to praise the God and Father of our glorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to fill us with the Spirit to bless our union and our thoughts, to speak truth without error, for the glory of Jesus, to convict Muslims to get saved. Father, be glorified. In the name of Jesus, your Son, amen. Yes, uh, last session we were discussing the idolatrous nature of Muslims being required to visit the Kaaba in Mecca, performing the rites associated to the Kaaba, such as touching the uh, two corners of the Kaaba and kissing the black stone. And what I want to do is I want to piggyback off that theme from the last time when we were discussing to further show how idolatrous these practices are, because even Muslim sources admit, as I documented in the previous session, that the pagans before the time of Muhammad in Mecca used to worship stones of various sizes and shapes. Not only that, they used to also touch and caress and kiss the black stone that Muslims still do to this day, and they also circumambulate the Kaaba, that cube structure, walking around it seven times, which Muslims do till this day. And as a former Muslim, you'd also run seven times between the two hills, Safa and Marwa, correct? That's right. Right, and so your pilgrimage would not be complete if you did not run between the two hills, Safa and Marwa, and run around the Kaaba seven times. Am I correct, or am I just 
misinforming our audience. No, no, absolutely. So I, wanna, I want people to understand. Now, let me explain the significance of that, of that real quickly before I delve into the Blackstone and then why the Kaaba being the object that Muslims face when they pray to their God or coming to touch it or circumambulate is idolatrous, unlike the Jews facing the temple in Jerusalem, because that's an objection that Muslims often bring up. Well, didn't the Jews face the temple when they prayed? Isn't that the same? No, it's not. And I'll explain that, God willing. But let me just go back to that point. Why did the pagans run around the Kaaba seven times and between the two hills, Sussman and Marwa, seven times, and why did Muhammad adopt that? Well, even Muslim scholars like Abdullah Yusuf Ali, if you get his English translation of the Quran with commentary, he has an appendix where he affirms this. The pagans at the time of Muhammad worshipped the planet. It was an astral religion. They believed the sun and moon and five other planets were planetary deities. Now let's do the math. Sun and moon and five planets for a total of seven. So the reason why the pagans ran around the Kaaba seven times and between Saf and Marwa seven times, besides the fact that at one time Saf and Marwa had two idols there, on each of the hills, they ran around the Kaaba and between the two hills seven times in honor of each of the planets that they venerated as gods and goddesses. That's why they did it. So I want this to sink in. The reason why the pagans did it is because they were honoring, venerating, worshiping their planetary deities, the sun and moon, and five other planets for a total of seven. So Muhammad took this pagan idolatrous practice, practice and made it a part of his own religion, a religion that he claims is absolutely pure monotheism, a religion devoted to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we know how Muslims try to get around that. They'll tell you, well, historically, these rites were instituted by Ishmael and Abraham. When Abraham visited Ishmael, because according to the Muslim tradition, Ishmael and his mother settled in Mecca. So what happened was, in time, the descendants of Ishmael perverted these rites and attributed and attached these rites to their gods and goddesses. So Muhammad came to purify these rites of its pagan elements. That's how they respond. Here's the problem. There's absolutely no shred of historical, sexual, or archaeological evidence that Ishmael ever settled in Mecca. And there's absolutely no shred of evidence from the pre-Islamic period that Abraham ever went to Mecca to visit Ishmael there and help him build the Kaaba and institute the rights of pilgrimage. This is pure fantasy. Absolutely. And, you know, if if I may interject this, brother, I mean, uh, genealogy is an extremely important thing. You look at the Bible, there is a lot of wonderful genealogies, including the genealogy of our Lord. Why in the world would Islam invest in the genealogy, for instance, of our Lord himself and having an entire chapter named after supposedly his family, and it failed miserably to even give us one single genealogy about Muhammad himself. Precisely, precisely. If you go to the Quran, nowhere is Quran, uh, the Quran says, and I challenge Muslims to refute me, nowhere in the entire Quran does the Quran ever say Muhammad is the son of Abraham or descendant of Ishmael. Nowhere does it say that. Even the later sources, the Hadith literature, are so full of contradictions as far as Muhammad's genealogy is concerned that Muslim sources say that beyond a certain person, and I believe the name Adnan, it's pure conjecture because they traced his lineage to an individual named Adnan, and it goes beyond that point, it's pure conjecture. There is no evidence. So even the Muslim sources do not have anything conclusive or concrete 
to connect Muhammad physically to Ishmael and through him to Abraham. So this is all make-believe, this is all fiction, this is all pure fantasy. So I want the non-Muslims to get what I just said. The reason why they run seven times around the Kaaba, or between the two hills, Safa and Marwa, is because the pagans did this in veneration and worship of the seven planetary deities, because they were into gods and goddesses being represented by the planets, the sun and the moon being the chief, which ironically, and you know this, brother, in, in Arabic, the word for moon is, is uh, Qamar, and Qamar is masculine. It's in the masculine gender, whereas the word for sun, Shams, is feminine, correct? That's right. Now, why I want to bring that out is because if the pagans were into astral worship, where they believed the planets, including the sun and the moon, represented the gods and goddesses that they worship, and since it's a patriarchal society, meaning the male is dominant, the male is chief, which means they would view the male deity as the chief deity. Now, when you tie that all together, and the moon god is the male deity, and the sun is the female deity, the goddess, guess what, folks? That means that the moon god would have been the chief god over all the other gods and goddesses, and if Allah is the name of the chief god, ipso facto, that means Allah was the name of the moon god. You see? That's now, right. again, I don't want the Muslims to get upset and start screaming. I'm not saying Muslims worship the moon god. They clearly don't. What I'm saying is that historically, when you go back to the pre-Islamic religion and the pre-Islamic practices, it is quite clear that the pagans viewed the moon god as the chief god, as a male deity, and if Allah was the name of the chief god, then that means they would have identified the moon as the planet representing Allah. That's this right. where we get the view. That Allah is the moon god. But go ahead, brother, you want to share something? Oh, I, I just wanted to add to what you just said, brother, because uh, I, I want to emphasize, I, I don't like it really when sometimes our brothers and sisters in Christ go around trying to emphasize that Muslims worship a moon god. We want to be careful. We do not want to just throw out, yes. uh, th throw in things and claims without substantiating them. Now, we may discover something down the road that proves this, but we need to be very careful. However, it's really interesting also, if you look at an overview, an aerial view of the Kaaba, it looks as if it's a big planet with a little, uh, you know, arc around it. I mean, it makes you wonder what's going on here. And at the same time, why do they have the crescent and a star, for instance, yes. as one of their symbols? So, exactly. so there, there is something to be said about that. Yeah, the reason why is because Islam is nothing more than repackaged Arabian paganism mm -hmm. combined with elements of Judaism and Christianity and Muhammad thrown in for good measure. That's all it is. Now, with that said, let's go back to the Black Stone. In the previous session, I said that not only did Muhammad teach that the Black Stone came down from paradise, he further taught it came down white, but then it became black from the sins of the people touching and cresting it. Well, the only way it could become black is if the Black Stone is absorbing, sucking up the sins of the people, which means, according to Muhammad, the Black Stone bears the sins of the people that worship it. To make it even worse, Muhammad is reported to have stated that on the Day of Judgment, the last day, the Black Stone will come to life and intercede for those that touched, kissed, and crested. Here we go. Are you ready for the evidence? Yes, sir. This comes from Sunan Ibn, uh, Ibn Majah. Sunan Ibn Majah. Now, for the exact references, you're going to have to go online to our website, and we have the page numbers, the volume, etc. But for the sake of time, I just got to go into the quotation itself. 
Saad bin Jubair is reported to have said, I heard, I heard Ibn Abbas saying that Allah's Messenger said, this stone must come on the day of resurrection, and it will have two eyes to see with and a tongue to talk, with bearing witness for him who caressed it with truth. Did you catch it? This stone, Ibn Abbas is considered one of the greatest Muslim scholars ever lived, Muhammad's first cousin, an eyewitness to Muhammad. And he reports Muhammad is saying, this stone on the day of resurrection will be given to eyes and a tongue to talk with, bearing witness, this stone will bear witness to Allah, of all those who caressed it while Muslims. So the black stone is the intercessor of Muslims. But That's I've been right. told that in Islam, there is no middleman, there is no mediator, there is no intercessor, it's you and God alone. Now let me read just one more narration before we comment on this. This comes from Jamit Tirmidhi. Jamit Tirmidhi. And again, Ibn Abbas reported, narrated that. The Messenger of Allah said about the black stone, by Allah, Wallah, Allah will raise it on the day of resurrection. So Allah is going to raise the stone on the day of resurrection with two eyes by which it sees and a tongue that it speaks with, testifying to whoever touched it in truth. Now, here's where I'm really puzzled. Muhammad condemned the idolaters, the pagans, for venerating stones, for worshiping stones. And when asked, when he asked the pagans, why are you doing this? Their response is because they were hoping that these objects would bring them closer to Allah. In other words, they were not worshipping these stones as gods in of themselves. They were taking these stones as intercessors, hoping that these stones would go before them, because the stones represented gods in their mind, hoping that they would bring them closer to God. And Muhammad condemned them for that. But brother, can you tell me, how is that different from what Muhammad just said? Muhammad just said, when you kiss this stone and you press it, like I did, it will come to life on the day of resurrection, speaking for you, interceding for you, i.e. bringing you closer to Allah. What's the difference? No, no difference at all. In fact, you know, what's the difference, by the way, in terms of we pray to God anytime, anywhere. Why do you have as a Muslim to face a brick building? Just give me a, 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 a valuable explanation. Why do you have to do it that way? What if you didn't face it that way? Does that mean Allah cannot really accept anything from you? Isn't he everywhere? Yes, and that brings us to the second point. I don't know how much time we have, but... We still have, a, fact, you know, let's say about 10 minutes, brother, give or take. Oh, okay, glory to God. So we can go into the Kaaba. So in other words, there's no difference between what pagans did and what Muslims are doing in the name of Muhammad. But now the very fact, and he just brought this up, not only when you perform the pilgrimage do you touch the walls of the Kaaba, the two corners, and that supposedly erases your sin. That too is idolatry. But Muslim prayer is ineffective, ineffectual, if the Muslims are not facing the Kaaba in Mecca. Now, here's the problem. <clears throat> if you ask a Muslim, does Allah dwell in the Kaaba? They'll say no. Is his presence there in some unique manner? They'll say no. Depending on which Muslim you ask, and again, this gets tricky, because when you're dealing with Sunnis, you have the Asharis, the Maturidis, that do not believe that Allah has a body of some sort. Whereas the Salafi Muslims, also known as the Wahhabi, the Wahhabi sect of Islam, which, by the way, you came out of, did you not? That is correct, man. The Wahhabi is the Salafi, meaning like worshipping as Muhammad and his companions did and practiced. And so you came out of that. So you weren't, you weren't, you wouldn't have been considered Ashari Maturidi. You would have been a Salafi, which is interesting, because in Salafi understanding, Allah has an actual body. 
an actual shape of some kind. He has eyes. He has two right hands. He doesn't have a right and left. Two right hands. He has a torso. He has a waist. He has a chin. Even though it's unlike anything in creation. So they'll tell you he really has eyes, but it's unlike any eyes in creation, right? So they don't believe these are simply metaphors, whereas other Muslims believe this is metaphorical. Eyes means his sight that he sees. But with that said, both groups, both groups would say that Allah is not in creation because they deny what's known as panentheism, God is in all, or pantheism, that God is all. Now, as Christians, we do also believe that God is personally distinct from all creation, and we say that God is omnipresent. We're not saying that God is present in creation in a substantial material way, so that if I sit on a chair, I'm sitting on God, or if you touch me, you're touching God. What we mean is that the entire creation is before God. He oversees it. He, he sustains it. Nothing escapes this power, control, knowledge, and, and, and grasp. Now, that said, the Muslims will say, if it's the Salafi Muslim, that Allah is above his throne, which is above the seven heavens. And the other Muslims will say that Allah is, is where he was before creation. But we don't assign a place to him. Now, the problem with that is, if you are telling me that there isn't a sense in which Allah is in the Kaaba, the Salafis will say he's above the throne. And the Asharis and Maturidis will also deny that he's in the Kaaba, because Allah is not part of creation. Then why do you face the Kaaba and bow to it if Allah is not there in some sense? Why are you facing a cube and praying? Why not just look up to heaven as a sign that God is more exalted and greater than your thoughts and creation? Because, again, even Jesus would look up to heaven. Now, obviously, when he looked up to heaven in the sky, God wasn't in the sky. But looking up to heaven is a posture. It's a posture that denotes the fact that you're acknowledging, just like heaven is higher than the earth, God is higher and greater than all creation and greater than our thoughts. So it's a posture that doesn't mean that God is literally up above, right? But it's a posture to knowing God's supremacy, His transcendence and greatness over creation. Since the Muslims do not say that Allah is present in the Kaaba, then why even face the Kaaba? The very fact that they're facing the Kaaba means that the Kaaba is now being the focus of their prayer because it's the necessary object for them to pray towards in order for their prayers to be accepted, which again shows that the Kaaba is another object, another middleman, so to speak, intercessor, so to speak, between them and their Lord. And yet Muslims keep trying to tell us there is no middleman, there is no mediator, there is no intercessor, and we don't take stone objects as a means to bring us closer to Allah. That's what the pagans did. We don't do, but that's precisely what they do. Stone, building, individuals that bring them closer to Allah, without which, without whom, Allah will not hear them or forgive them. So in what way is Islam different from the paganism that came before Muhammad? In what way is it different? Absolutely. And also, I mean, I want to point out something to our listeners here. Uh, the idea that Muslims have to face, uh, uh, you know, Mecca in prayer happened after Muhammad migrated from supposedly. I mean, we're, we're, we're historical, uh, you know, discoveries today are very damaging to the history yep. of Islam as we know it. But let's let's go with the traditional view. Muhammad invested 13 years of his mission, if you wish, or ministry in Mecca. Then he migrated to Medina, and it was around 624 AD, give or take, that supposedly he received a revelation telling him now you should not 
really pray in the direction you were praying, which people will tell you it was to be Jerusalem. And now you need to start praying towards Mecca. The only problem is this. He himself did not go and destroy idols until 630. So for at least six to seven years, he was facing Mecca and the Kaaba with many idols in it. Exactly. Precisely. And yet they keep telling us Islam's pure monotheism. Now, a Muslim may object to us and say, but hold on, didn't the Jews face the temple? Didn't they also pray towards yeah. the temple? Well, there is a profound difference between our conception of God and their conception. That's right. No God and, uh, is separate from creation. He's separate from creation, distinct from creation, transcended over creation. There is a sense, a sense in which God can manifest His presence in a unique way in a specific locality. So, though the temple is not part of God, God did say to the Israelites that His name, His presence would dwell there in a unique manner, a unique manner that we don't fully comprehend, but in a manner that would make God present to them in the temple nonetheless. So when the Jews faced the temple, they were not facing the temple. They were facing a building in which they knew that God's presence was there in a real, unique sense. Now let me just prove it. I'm going to read Second Chronicles chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. Then Solomon said, and you can read First Kings chapter 8 and Second Chronicles, the entire chapter 6 and 7, but for the sake of time, Second Chronicles 6, verses 1 to 2, then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. And our Lord Jesus Christ confirms that in Matthew 23, 21. Matthew 23, 21, Jesus our Lord says, and he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. So why did the Jews face the temple to pray? Because God said, I'm going to dwell there in a unique manner. My presence will be there uniquely. I won't be bound to it. And it's not part of me, I'm not part of it, but in a unique, mysterious way, God's presence would be there, so that when they faced the temple, they knew that God was dwelling there in a unique way, even though He's above and beyond creation. So it's not the temple they were facing, but the God they were facing, who was dwelling in the temple in a unique manner. So when Muslims appeal to what the Jews did, they're comparing apples and pineapples, because no Muslim believes that Allah's presence is in the Kaaba. So then why do you face it? And also, brother, I mean, uh, we're talking about a command versus doing it, uh, you know, basically because you believe that where the presence of God is. I mean, in Islam, it's a command. A Muslim cannot pray outside of this direction. Exactly. And therefore, it, pr your prayer is negated. I mean, you, you can try to defend it all you want, but without praying in that direction, your prayer will not be accepted. I mean, I remember when I first, uh, you know, uh, left uh, Saudi, I brought a compass with me, brother, a compass to indicate <laughs> the direction of Mecca. Today, they have even an app for this. You see? Yeah. And, and, and yet again, if I had asked you back then, why are you praying to the Kaaba? Does God live there? What would you have told me? Does your Allah live there? Oh, no, of course not. That would be blasphemy. So then here again, we have a pagan practice, a practice observed by the pagans which Muhammad adopted as part of his religion, trying to pass it off as monotheism, as the religion of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by the way, what does the Bible say about stones? In Leviticus 26, verse 1, it says that you are not to take any stones and venerate them. Leviticus 26, verse 1. So the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses says, you do not take stones or figurines and venerate them, and yet the God of Muhammad has Muhammad and his followers kissing, smothering, crushing a black stone, that turned black because it absorbed their sins, 
which will appear on the Day of Judgment as their intercessor, touching the walls of a huge structure that the pagans venerated so that their sins can be erased. And yet Muslims still want to insist Islam is the purest form of monotheism out there, free of all idolatry. It's a lie from the pit of hell. So I hope everybody's been enjoying this series. Of course, we're going to have Sam more and more and more, you know, with us. Uh, So please go back to the previous uh, podcast episodes to uh, get a context of what we're talking about. You can visit that. uh, Let us reason on our Facebook. um, I should say on our website, Sierra International, sierrainternational.com. That's C as in Charlie. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is also called Sierra International. We encourage you to become a Patreon patron and give to the ministry to allow us to stay on the air and be able to produce many podcasts and many videos. And uh, you can do the same thing with our dear brother here. Uh, Listen to the previous episodes. He shared his information. And we encourage you to pray about supporting both of our ministries. And we thank you and we have a blessed day. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.